Good afternoon. I guess uh, good morning to our participants uh, in the United States. It's a pleasure to welcome all of you at today's Science Cafe. Hope you are well and comfortable. My name is Przemysl Pala, I'm director of the Czech Center in London. In continuations of this year Artificial Intelligence Science Cafe series at the Czech Center has launched earlier this year in collaboration with the Royal Institutions, we had to, for obvious reason, to alter the format and the topic of our discussions. In response to the unprecedented outbreak of the coronavirus that have severely impacted millions of lives and businesses around the world, various governments have enacted array of restrictive measures to contain the spread of the virus. To a significant extent, these measures are based on three aspects. The first is restricting people's mobility, second, social distancing, the third, utilizations of vast personal data. Today's presented approach by Tomasz Krajnik is targeting the same objective, to mitigate negative impact of the coronavirus, though through a spatial temporal models which are based on individual responsibility and participations, and not on utilizations of personal data. This approach is currently gaining a lot of traction and interest from various institutions, and it's promising to be an alternative to present restrictive measures, which are, as we know, accompanied with severe detrimental impacts on economies of all scale, and well-being of many communities and societies. With that, I'm very pleased to introduce to you Tomasz Krajnik, well-acclaimed senior researcher at the Czech Technical University in Prague, who is specializing in kernel robotics. I shall add that Tomasz and his team have been successful numerous times in prestigious global robotics competitions, such as DARPA or MBZIR. As a technical note on today's format, we'll commence with Tomasz's presentations uh, approximately for 30 minutes, and then there will be a Q&A that you will be able to ask questions. Uh, I'd like to inform you also that this uh, presentation will be recorded and will be made available to you on the Czech Center's podcast. So now, without any further ado, I'd like to turn the screen to Tomasz Krajnik in Prague. So Tomasz, please. So hello everyone. Uh, thank you, Przemek, for your introduction and for invitation to be in here. Uh, my name is Tom and my background is in mobile robotics. And I will talk today about a system that's actually based on a long-term research uh, for mobile robots that have to coexist with humans in uh, in natural environments. And I will show how the algorithms from this domain can actually help people with social distancing. So I'll first talk about uh, the motivation for this research, then about the research itself. And in the end, I will provide you a brief overview and links to a system that we have implemented that, so that you can use it actually yourself. So let me start with the presentation. <clears throat> so, the, pr the presentation or the topic of the talk today is Freeman contra COVID. Uh, Freeman 
is a very fitting word in this case because the system that we are going to present uh, preserves anonymity of people uh, in its core principle and also Freeman actually does stand for frequency map enhancement which is the core technology uh, that uh, allowed us to implement this system. So let us first start with uh, what we are actually facing and what were the challenges and uh, events that led to the spread of this disease. So uh, let me first start with uh, how all of this uh, actually happened, what I found in literature uh, about the, the timeline of what we are facing now. So actually, uh, on December 6, there was a new case of pneumonia detected in China, in Wuhan. And this case was detected in two people. One was a guy who uh, visited the, the market, the animal, the so-called wet animal market. And slightly later on, the pneumonia was also detected with his wife, who, who did not visit the market at the time. So from the very beginning, uh, one could suspect that the virus is actually spreading uh, among people. <clears throat> Uh, approximately 20 days later, uh, the doctors uh, in Wuhan became to notice that there is a cluster of pneumonia cases with, uh, which, are, which were previously unknown. And around uh, December 25, uh, several of the medical staff contracted this pneumonia and they went to quarantine. Uh, later on, a few days, uh, there were many, many cases that could not really be clearly linked back to the people who directly visited the seafood market in, in Hunan. So around December 30, Dr. Wenliang informs his colleagues about uh, the fact that this virus can actually spread uh, from people to from person to person, and he urged them to take protective measures. Uh, Actually, the Chinese authorities quickly silenced Dr. Ben Liang and they arrested uh, seven other people whose uh, whereabouts are now unknown. And on that very day, when the authorities intervened, uh, this information leaked to the people in Wuhan. And actually on that day, on the 1st of January, 175,000 people left Wuhan, which actually triggered the, the epidemics because uh, there are clearly uh, probably some infected people among this, uh, this crowd. So on January 3, China actually declared that there is no clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission and there are no medical staff infections. Uh, and the next day, China actually banned to publication of any information that is related uh, to, this, uh, to this new SARS. And they also instructed uh, research institutions to either hand over or to destroy the samples. On January 22, the World Health Organization mission in China actually indicated that they, there is a clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. So that took approximately one or two months, right? Uh, from the onset of the disease, when there was a clear suspicion that there might be a human-to-human -human transmission possibility to actual declaration that this is, uh, this is, um, there is a strong evidence of that. Okay, so this uh, was something that, that led to the outbreak of the disease. And one can see that there were actually uh, 
several several characteristics of this and one of them was that uh trying to curb the the true information about the nature of the disease actually led to to slow down to slowing down the response second uh the techniques that were used uh, to confine dr ben liang were actually technologically pretty much the same as the ones that are that are uh, advertised nowadays by governments uh, to help quarantine or to make the quarantine better uh, so basically the same technology as would be used for contact tracing was actually used uh, against dr ben liang um, in order to to make sure that he does not uh, spread this information around yeah <clears throat> so that's that's first of the thing the beginning of the epidemics so actually to assess the 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 danger of the epidemics what i did is that i also take a look many people are saying that uh, this is very similar to influenza so i actually checked about the the numbers of the of the disease and i used the data of the center for disease control it's a us organization so this is a this these are figures that hold for the us so actually uh, I checked the last three years of uh, influenza epidemics. And what's actually quite interesting is that for me, it was surprising how high these numbers are. So in the winter 17 to 18, uh, there was an estimated, the estimated number of people sick with regular influenza in the US was 43 million. There was uh, around 600,000 people uh, taken to hospitals and around 60,000 deaths. One year later, there was another wave, which is influenza is a regular epidemic that's happening every every winter, I would say. There was five, 35 million people sick, quote, uh, half a million people hospitalized, and around 30,000 people dead. And again, uh, the estimated uh, count of the people who, who are probably sick with influenza this year is again around 50 million, around... Uh, 1 million people in hospitals and around 80,000 people dead. On the other hand, the COVID-2 disease in the US, so far, 1 to 3 million people who are sick, around 40,000 people in hospitals and around 30,000 dead. So the problem is that the, we don't know the characteristics of the COVID-2 disease. Many people would say that this is, you know, comparable to influenza, etc. But there's a new disease. We don't know if we are able to build antibodies. What are the long-term impacts of uh, of contracting uh, this virus, etc., etc. So although the numbers might look a bit similar, uh, I think we should still be aware that this can be quite much more dangerous than than regular influenza. However, what I wanted to show here is that we are facing epidemics on a regular basis. <clears throat> so when facing the epidemies, uh, one can actually check what are the general techniques, how to, how the World Health Organization is uh, telling us how we should, you know, tackle the, the pandemics and, and epidemic cases. And if one checks about the strategy of the WHO, uh, there are basically five points. There is a uh, one can see that there is a mobilization to prevent the spread of the disease through uh, personal hygiene habits like you know, hand washing, uh, respiratory etiquette, and social distancing. 
uh, another strategy or another keystone of the strategy is to control, to rapidly find and isolate the, the infected cases, and then to suppress the spread again, again through prevention, distancing and travel restriction. Of course, uh, another cornerstone of, the, of how to tackle this situation is to, you know, uh, is to provide a proper care to, to reduce mortality. And of course, the, the main thing that everybody is looking now is uh, the pharmaceutical solution. That means developing a vaccine or developing a, a drug that would uh, be able to, to cure the COVID. However, with, this, with all of these strategies, uh, what we can see here that prevention appears twice. The one of the points is uh, the control, then to, it's contract tracing, that uh, means to find and isolate people who are infected. But the prevention is more or less more, uh, is more emphasized in this strategy. And regarding the pharmaceutical solution, it might take, you know, perhaps uh, more than a year definitely to develop a new vaccine, or we might be lucky and we might find that some other generic drug might, might work. However, even if this is the case, we might face uh, other pandemics and have this problem again and again. <clears throat> so regarding the strategies, what I also did is that I actually checked like the, the textbooks about how to tackle epidemies. Then I checked the websites of the, of the health organizations in different, different, in different countries to see actually how the governments follow the general strategy that's set by the World Health Organization. So in the textbooks that I found, but I did a very, very simple analysis just to, just to see the, just to document the narrative of the individual organizations on, on tackling the, the epidemic spread. So I took the introduction to epidemiology and I took all of the words that are in these documents and I simply counted the frequency of these words uh, appearing throughout, the, throughout the, the book. And I took the 10 most prevalent words. And I did the same for the individual websites of, these, uh, of the health organization. So in the introduction to epidemiology, the most frequent word is education. Then what's there, it's contact, prevention, susceptible, patient, interview, washing, advice, person, hand. And you can really clearly see that uh, it's quite much focused at the education and prevention. These are the, the tools that are, uh, I would say, emphasized in, in that textbook, uh, in this kind of a textbook. Uh, regarding the Center for Disease Control, that's a US institution. Again, when one would count the, the frequency of the indivi individual words, uh, it would be people, water, face, cover, cloth, hands, soap, bleach, household clean. Again, this is quite clearly aimed at, uh, at uh, the personal hygiene narrative and how to, how to keep your, your surroundings clean in order to, to mitigate the risk of, of getting infected. Similarly, NHS, when one looks at the, at the pages of NHS, uh, you will find the words that's our help, NHS, home, advice, risk, health, medical symptoms, stay information. And again, this is uh, aimed at social distancing and, and prevention and 
I would say that the information provided in, by both uh, Center for Disease Control and the National Health Service is uh, more about uh, calming the people and really advising them on, on what to do without, uh, without any you know, um, alarmistic uh, messages. Uh, I also checked the, the web page of uh, the Czech Ministry of, of Health and the words are as follows. It says, contain, contact, that's the most frequent word, contact, quarantine, hygiene officer, app, Eurush risk, smart, potentially infected, and MAPS-CZ. So one would wonder why there is Eurush and MAPS-CZ. And these are actually apps that are now heavily advertised by the government. And these apps are for contact tracing. So the MAPS-CZ app uh, is actually doing GPS tracing. And when you are found to be infected, the hygiene officer uh, can use your tracking information uh, to, and it's very euphemistically said, to help you remember when you have met whom, where. So this, this phrase, uh, helping to remember, it triggers a bit uh, a memory from when I was visiting, when I was at a, at a police station some, some 20 years ago, and also the police officer told me that he will help me to remember where I was uh, using well, more traditional techniques than, than a smartphone uh, tracing. Regarding the Irush application, that's again about uh, the tracing, the contact tracing. It's not tied to the GPS. And I have to say that the Irush is a bit more concerned about the privacy of the users because they don't track GPS. They simply track uh, how long two users of two smartphones have been close, close to each other and they measure this by the Bluetooth technology. However, what I wanted to show here is that unlike of the textbook cases or, uh, or, the, or the US and UK institution, our ministry is more aimed at, uh, at this contact tracing uh, narrative of, the, of, the, of how, to, how to tackle the spread. There is not much mentioned about the actual prevention and all is now aimed at the so-called smart quarantine system, which is about yeah, people tracking. So um, taking into account all of these strategies and all of these uh, narratives that the individual governments have, uh, one has to think a bit, you know, even if we are able to, to tackle this spread and to curb the, the uh, the new cases and the, the number of infected people per day, we have to think what, will, what we will have to do in, in, the, in the long term. So the long-term outlook from the literature that, that I saw and that I could study, it seems that uh, developing a vaccine might really take quite some time. Uh, if one has a look on how how other epidemics, which don't have a pharmaceutical solution yet, uh, were actually tackled, one can find, for example, the case of uh, HIV. So in the beginning, where, when HIV was spreading, there was a lot of misinformation and there was a strong push by, by several governments to try to uh, isolate the groups that were in their eyes responsible for, for uh, spreading the disease. And then there was a lot of stigmatization of the people who, who uh, 
contracted HIV. However, in the long term, the countries that uh, promoted uh, that promoted uh, responsible behavior and they they basically educated people in a fair way by telling them, look, these are the risk behaviors, don't do this, uh, or you know, think about what you're doing. Um, and uh, these are the protective measures that you can take. And these strategies, they were much, much more long-term and it was a long run, but in the end, these strategies were behind uh, tackling the, the, the spread of HIV. Of course, I understand that uh, contracting HIV, you need much more intense contact with the other person, but the similarity between the, between the COVID and the HIV is in the, in the fact that the latent and incubation periods are quite long. And because of this, uh, contact tracing itself is, uh, is not as efficient because what you need to do is to reduce the number that you infect during this latent period uh, before you actually develop your symptoms, if you develop them at all. So from the long-term perspective, one needs to have uh, sustainable social distancing. However, you know, social distancing is not, uh, is not very, very, it's not easy to implement and maintain in the long-term again, because people are, after all, we are social creatures. We want to meet with the others. Uh, and we, all the society is, is, uh, has its networks of, you know, food distribution and education, et cetera, et cetera. And to put everyone in isolation would basically cause colla economic collapse. And an economic collapse would mean that the health systems would collapse. And this might eventually bring much more deaths and much more reduction of the life expectancy than the virus itself. So one has to implement social distancing in a way that's, uh, I would say, in balance of the economic needs and, and the needs of the, of the quality of, of life. So there has to be a, a balance between, between several ways. Social distancing cannot mean really, you know, isolation. Another problem is that uh, if the social distancing measures are lifted, or perhaps people become less careful, uh, we will probably have a secondary outbreaks. And these secondary outbreaks actually can be much, much stronger than the outbreaks uh, that we are facing now. So according to the models that uh, I have seen, uh, one can predict that there would be a secondary outbreak, for example, in Japan, uh, early May or maybe one week earlier. So we can see that how, how lifting these uh, social distancing measures can, can really lead to, to secondary outbreaks. But, but, you know, I'm trying to forecast here. The future will, will show, we'll see in a few weeks. <clears throat> so what we are actually proposing here is that, uh, from the literature, it seems that most of the infected cases don't come from like these binary contacts. So this is the, the typical, uh, this is how people typically imagine that, that uh, one gets infected is that you go someone and someone, you know, coughs somewhere and you, you, par, you pass through the, through the aerosol and you breathe in the virus and then you are infected. However, in uh, most of the studies, it seems that these uh, contracting this virus through a, a random binary contact is not 
is not often. It's, it seems to be a marginal case, actually. Uh, and most of, the, most of the infected people can be traced back to sort of clusters of infection. And these clusters are basically uh, locations and times of large concentrations of people. So these are religious gatherings, uh, these are conferences, then uh, large supermarkets during the peak hours, at, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, when we were actually thinking what could be the one of the most efficient way how to how to uh, how to tackle the the epidemic from a, from a longer term perspective, then one could one should really aim at uh, allowing to and facilitating long term sustainable social distancing and. That basically means, from, from the literature that we have read, it means that you need to have a solution that would allow you to efficiently avoid clusters of infection. So avoid uh, locations and times where there are large densities of people. And basically, also, what you, what you want to achieve is that uh, typically when you, when you go out or when you, you want to socialize, you want to socialize with people that you already know. You simply don't want to meet people that you that you don't know. So you can have uh, you don't want to go to these crowded places because of socializing. It's uh, you when you want to socialize, you would go uh, to meet your friends, not to a you know a random place with, with a lot of with a lot of other people. So our system is actually aiming. Uh, towards recommendations to people on how to avoid these clusters of infection. So how does actually robotic technology fits into, into this narrative? So what we were studying uh, for the last uh, 10 years, say, were robots that were supposed to operate for long time in natural environments and in environments that are shared with, with humans. And one of the problems that the robots have is that if you place a robot somewhere and you want the robot to operate in the new environment, you place it there, you take a joystick or whatever, and you guide the robot around. And the robot creates something that's called a map. And this map that allows the robot to determine where it is, where it's its charging station, where are the areas the robot is supposed to operate at. So it, the map tells the robot where it is. And also the map is used by the robot uh, to plan its path around and to plan its activities. One of the problems of these maps is that after a certain time, any map becomes obsolete. So outdoors, simply if you have a map that's built from your camera and you know the sun sets down and you have night, everything looks completely differently. And for robots, this is this is a very, very tricky situation because they cannot really compare what they are seeing and they cannot relate a night scene of, of a same location to how the location looks uh, during the day. So they, they, they become confused and they, they cannot you know, determine their position. Uh, indoors, the problem is similar because people, you know, they tend to open and close doors. They, they tend to move furniture around. And this causes any maps that the robots are using uh, to deteriorate over time, which is a negative impact on their, on their ability to operate. So what we have been researching were methods that would allow 
to describe not only the environment structure, so how stuff looks like, but uh, we were developing methods that are trying to describe the evolution of the environment over time. So say that, that a robot is moving in an indoor environment and after some time it will understand uh, what are the changes that it sees and because all of these changes are caused by people and people have habits, uh, one can use, one can try to learn about the patterns of the habits and use these learned patterns to predict what are the, what are the changes in the environment. And we did, uh, we did a very nice algorithm that's a probabilistic algorithm which is called a frequency map enhancement. And this algorithm allows to take almost any map in robotics and by tweaking the representation of the underlying probability, you can turn this map, this map that was originally static, into a map that actually describes the evolution of the environment over time. And in one of our research, we actually employed this algorithm in a hospital in Vienna. And in Vienna, what the robot had to do is to provide information, provide useful information to the hospital clients. And for that, the robot actually needed to forecast where the people are going to be at, at what time. So say the robot was uh, supposed to remind people that there is, a, there is some special event. And therefore, the robot would go somewhere and display information on its screen about this event. And it would expect that people would try to search more information. So the robot was trying to infer from its observations uh, where the people will be at a certain time and to go there in advance and to display this information. And we actually tested this algorithm in this uh, hospital in Vienna for, for several weeks. And after a relatively short time and from quite sparse data, so typically we had something like 20 measurements per location on, on, the, on the people density or on the people's willingness to interact with the robot. And from these uh, quite a few data points, we were able to, to build temporal models that really allowed the robot to make long-term forecasts of uh, when it's more likely that the people will be actually around that area. So the, the robot found some obvious, obvious things. So for example, the crowds of people are happening around the, the, the lifts because you know you go to a lift and then you, you press a button and then you have to wait and in the meantime other people can accumulate. And other clusters uh, that were not uh, that were not as you know spread over time were for example around the, the hospital's cafeteria and also around the, the freezer and at the, at the offices. But around the cafeteria as one can imagine there are these more busy times when people are going for lunch. The same holds with freezer. So the robot had to learn and it actually did learn and inferred what are the busy times around these locations. <clears throat> so when we were thinking on how to contribute the robotics technology uh, to the spread of the, to the, to curbing the spread of the disease, uh, we thought that maybe instead of using the, the physical robots, one could use this algorithm that allows to to learn from a small amount of uh, irregular observations to learn what is the likelihood of uh, occurrence of human crowds. So we basically took this algorithm that we have been developing for since 2014 
and we created another system that allows to feed information not only just from that hospital but that allows the people themselves feed in information in this in this uh, in this system and then to see what are the predictions so in principle uh, the system works by by uh, the system composes of uh, um, two mobile apps and one and a, a, a processing server. So in, in principle, you have a mobile, you can install a mobile app that allows you to report the density and the number of people at a certain location. And, you know, imagine that you are going to a shop and you are, uh, you just left the shop. So you have a good GPS reception and you knew that you had to wait for a long time in a queue. So what you basically say is that you tell to this app, okay, I've been to this shop and there was 100 people around and it was really, really crowded. So you enter this situation, this, this data into your application and you click send. And at the moment you click send, what happens is that the app reads your GPS coordinates and the data that you entered and it sends this to a remote server. Nothing else is sent. Uh, because the algorithm that I was talking about actually describes only the locations and the time evolution of the certain phenomena, in this case, the density of people at, at certain locations. So <clears throat> we actually cannot work with uh, people tracks. So instead of you know tracking someone all the time, we only require, let's say, uh, active assistance of the person when he or she wants to report about the density. So actually, let's say that you, that you typically visit, I don't know, three different places during the day and you simply send actively from these places information about the density of, of the people around. So what happens is that this is sent to, to processing servers, which uh, create something that's called a spatial temporal map. So a spatial temporal map, as I was explaining before, is a map that captures the evolution of certain phenomena over time. So in this case, we take all of these measurements, we take measurements from similar places, and we are trying to infer what is the typical, what is the typical uh, density of people at the location. And through the processing, we are also creating a forecast for the next day. So our models not only capture the history, but they do, they perform these forecasts. So once these maps are created, uh, and, um, one, once these forecasts are created, they can be actually distributed uh, to the public either via a simple web page where you, you know, uh, open a map, you, you check the shops or parks or playgrounds in your vicinity and you click on them and you can see what's the, what's the forecasted density of people or what's the forecasted crowdedness of these locations over time. Also, uh, this information is uh, transmitted via a, a web application, which works in a similar way. So, so basically what you do is that when you first install this application, you uh, pick a few places where you go frequently and the application will tell you, will recommend you the times of the visit of that location. So the, what actually happens is that the app says, okay, uh, 
I want um, the prediction of the crowdedness of this particular place, and this gets downloaded from the server. And then the algorithm calculates uh, the calculates times when it's not so much crowded. It does some randomization so people would not come in the in the exactly same time to the place, and then it makes you a time recommendation. So naturally, this recommendation will be in some you know uncomfortable time because people don't visit these 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 shops. For example, they don't go shopping when it's uncomfortable for them. However, what you can say is that okay, you see that there the time basically doesn't fit you, so you just click on the on the shop or on the location, and what you see is this you know timeline that shows you okay, it's really crowded around four o'clock, and it's much much less crowded if you go you know two hours later. But you don't have to go at eight because there is no one. But if you already go at six o'clock, the risk will be will be quite low. So this is the idea uh, of our system, and actually we released the system uh, a few days ago. So you can simply go to the web page and you can download both of the apps. So what's the difference of our system to to all of the other ones? So I think that the main the principal difference of our system is that we do not track people at all. So the algorithm that the system is based on describes is only able to describe locations. So basically what it does is that if there are several people visiting a certain place uh, in different times of the day, all of these informations get aggregated about this particular location. And let's say after you have uh, 10 to 20 measurements, you get quite a decent temporal model that uh, someone else can use. Another advantage of our system that it works very, very locally. So you don't need to have, you know, 10% or 50% of, up, of uh, population using this app. Uh, from the experiments that we have performed, it seems that in the city, for example, where, where I live, it's a small suburb of Prague, there is around 15,000 uh, 15, people you need five less than less than five uh, users of the reporting application to create a, a quite good uh, quite good spatial temporal map of most of the significant locations in the city so five people can map a town that has more than 10000 population so we don't need to have uh, that many users another advantage of the system is that uh, it's actually divided into two applications. One is for the reporting, and by reporting, you are actually helping the others. You are not really helping your, of course you are helping yourself mainly, but you are helping the users of the second app that does the recommendation of the times. And the users of the second app, again, you don't need to have you know, many of them, but from what I have observed and from what I've understood, uh, there are plenty of people who are uh, somehow more in danger by the spread of the virus and of course by also by regular influenza. Uh, for example, they, 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 are, um, they have some chronic uh, illness or perhaps there is someone in, in their household who is, who is uh, um, elderly or who also has uh, some, some chronic illness. So these people, they are very, very concerned about their own health, and they are also concerned about the, the health of the people uh, that share households with them. So they can 
very easily use this app to, to avoid the crowded times. So this is why we designed the system in a bit different way than the others. So we actually have an app for people who want to help others and we have an app for people who want to protect themselves. And in the middle between this app, there is uh, our engine that actually runs uh, these uh, forecasting algorithms. So that's probably all what I wanted to present about the system today. And yeah, thank you for your attention and questions, please. Do we see any virtual hands here? Uh, I got a question here, which I'm going to read uh, for you, Tomasz. Um, there are currently robots being used to clean hospitals' rooms using UV light. But these robots require people not to be in the room. Uh, have you thought about using this technology to help with the scheduling of the robot to allow to find rooms that need cleaning that are likely to be empty at certain times? Uh, I mean, regarding the using the UV tubes or the LEDs to, to disinfect the rooms, you have to be sure that the person won't be there. But you could use this technology to, to, uh, to estimate when the person won't be there. But I guess that in controlled environments, like in hospitals, the, the staff, they, they know what to do better than this kind of algorithm. So they will probably schedule the activities in, in a more directed way. However, for public spaces, it would make sort of a sense. Now, if you heard the other questions, uh, I was asking where, where you see the key obstacles or challenges in your model to be more generally spread and used by the public? Okay, so I think that the idea is not very straightforward, to be honest. You have to explain to people that prevention, right now everybody is afraid. And to talk about prevention when people are scared and to try to convey to them something more difficult than the government will protect you is a bit tricky. So that's one of the, one of the things for against the wider adoption. The other thing is that there are there are projects that clearly violate uh, privacy. And when you start talking about an app, uh, people will start to think that you might be one of these guys. So for us, we want to focus on is to disclose all the source codes of our applications so people can easily check if there is something weird in our system or not. And also we would like to audit our code. So that might possibly lead to a wider adoption of the system. But the main thing, we released the app two days ago, I think. So we, and the, the nature of the app is that we do not know how many users there are because there are no IDs of the users. So we can only talk about how many places are being covered. One, one more thing. It would make sense for us to partner with uh, with someone who already has an app that's widely used. And for example, this was provided to us by our colleagues. This contact was provided to us by our colleagues from the National University of Science and Technology who got a contact to a Telenor company or their, their branch 
And this company, probably in May, will implement our API into their system, into their app. And in this way, we should get two millions of users instantaneously. Other questions here uh, that, that came in. Uh, what is your view on the current restrictive measures uh, which are in place in terms of the sustainability, I assume in the terms of the time sustainability comparing to some of the solutions uh, your models is offering? Okay. So, so I think two weeks ago, uh, I was at one uh, presentation that happened on the ground of one US university. And there was a guy whose name was Esteban Moro. And he wrote a great paper on social, social distancing measures. And he actually had mobility data of all people in, in many of the US towns. He had them anonymized. So they were like cubes of five times five meters and 15 minutes. And he ran several what if scenarios using these data. And it seems that only closures of schools won't help. Only closures of schools and work won't help. And once you lift restrictions, we will have a second peak of the epidemic, which might be worse than the first one. So this is something about the long-term sustainability. I have, that's the first thing is like, if you ease the, the restrictions, but people won't change their behavior, uh, you have the same problem again. And a typical proposal how to, how to prevent people meeting in crowded places was what was employed in certain crowded times, so in certain, certain crowded towns. So you look at your ID or your driver's license, and the last number indicates the hour when you can go shopping. Mm -hmm. And this is a solution that I bet some governments would, would like because it's a very simple thing. But you can achieve perhaps very similar thing with our system without, you know, having a policeman in front of every shop checking your ID. The second problem with the long-term sustainability is the e economy, right? If you, if people, I mean, Definitely economy is going to change. We are going to work from home and this was forecasted a long time ago, but no one knew that it, this could be implemented so quickly. Uh, but however, for many industries, you have to be in the place. For services, you have to be in the place. And we have to think how to, how to have the economy running, how to have the services running while being able to do social distancing. So there are two things. One that you cannot really ease the restrictions quickly because this might occur, this might cause a disaster. And second, if you keep them in place, if the economy collapses, the health system collapses, and this is even more dead people. So there has to be a balance in the long term. But I haven't seen many people talking about this uh, long term aspect. Of, of this situation we are facing.
Right. Uh, I agree. That's going to be a definitely a game changer for a number of the industries and businesses, or at least that's going to clearly expedite the, the trends which we have seen uh, over the past uh, couple of years, uh, whatever is it, e-commerce, is it the home offices, uh, etc. So it's, I think going to be going to see a big, big difference uh, in, in coming months and, and years. The other question that I do have here is, uh, if you can describe uh, the main differences between the other technological initiatives which been announced recently, I think you touch upon a little bit the one in Singapore, but there are the ones like the, the joint initiative by Apple and Google. And of course, in the Czech Republic, there is the initiative, the Smart Quarantine. So maybe you can walk us through that and, and see what, what are the distinction uh, and applicability of, of the other ones. So, so a typical approach, I mean, one of the things that I've read in the papers from Singapore, that was one of the first outbreaks that was actually tackled quickly. And there was this paper about the, the clusters of, of infection. And in the paper throughout, they were using two terms, contact tracing and surveillance. And the funny thing is that I read this paper a few times. And as a person who is uh, from the computer science background, I thought that contact tracing is something completely different than the epidemi epidemiologist called contact tracing. So I called to an epidemiologist and he told me, well, contact tracing is that if the disease has this reproduction factor of two, the hygiene doctor asks you what, who are the two people you are in contact most of the time? If the number is 10, he's going to ask you about 10 people who are you most in the contact. And in the epidemiology, I guess that this is the meaning of the contact tracing. It doesn't mean tracing people by GPS. Eh? And surveillance is not cameras, but it's surveillance of your health. So it's uh, magnetic resonance, you know, screening of your lungs and this. But if a common guy reads the, or if an IT guy reads the, the paper from Lancet on, or from, from other medicinal journals, he reads these terms in a wrong way. And this leads to implementing these systems in a wrong way. So this is one of the things. I think that the terminology in IT and in epidemiology might actually mean different things. That's an important thing to realize. So if a, if a journal suggests contact tracing, they, they don't mean sticking nose into everyone's phone. Regarding the initiatives of, that are happening in Czech. So there, there is this initiative that's called Smart Quarantine. Uh, first, I don't know what, what really it is. So this initiative started with the following idea. We will ask phone operators to, to track people's position. And if there is someone who is possibly infected or quarantined and he leaves his home, he will be in big trouble. We will also track uh, card payments. And if someone is in quarantine and he pays by card, he is not only stupid, but he's also in big trouble. 
And this is how the smart quarantine started. The second idea of the smart quarantine was that people will share their GPS position. So your tracks and everyone's tracks will be processed by a central server who will find the intersections in time and space. And when you are found infected, you will be asked by the medical officer again to provide your contacts. And this technology will help you to remember. It's a very euphemistic term. Help you to remember whom you have met. Okay? <laughs> so helping to remember the last time I've heard it was 15 years ago and it was in a police station. And they told me that they will help me to remember in a more traditional, with more traditional tools. Yeah? So that's one of the things. Uh, of course, the, the initiatives are saying that there, there has to be consent of the person to be tracked. However, if you are making a contract with someone, there's this clause that you cannot make a contract when you are threatened or you are under pressure. And definitely, the, all the rhetorics in the media is that people are scared. I don't think that you can get informed consent of people who are scared. And th there is one thing that I would like to say is that many of these systems are driven by people who are, who are keen in, about technology. They are people in computer science background, and they see how efficient their systems could be, how helpful they could be but they, they completely omit the ethics. And this is something that I've I was very happy to learn during the Strengths Project where we actually deployed the robot in a hospital where there were vulnerable people. And we came up with a lot of similar ideas and we were always rejected and we were a bit upset about it in the beginning. But in the end, we understood that the first thing to do is to ask the doctors and the users about what they need, not to go to them and tell them, you need my system. But from all what happened in Czech is that the technology people came to the government and they explained to the government that the government needs this system. And since the guy who is in head of the epidemic measures in Czech he is, he is an epidemiologist, but he is also a military epidemiologist. So this guy would be typically in charge when we would be under uh, a biological attack. And he's taking these measures like there was a war. But he has to understand that we are not a military state, I hope yet. So that's one of the things is the first initiative was to, to keep people home and to track if they are violating quarantine. Then it was GPS tracing. And another app that's popular now is the one that uh, Mark was talking about, is that you install a Bluetooth, an app that's uh, monitoring the Bluetooth of the, the phones around. And if you pass around someone for, or if you are with someone for a longer time, the Bluetooth ID of the other phone gets recorded in your so this is a nice, this is much more sensitive approach, I would say, because it doesn't track 
where you have met whom, it only tracks whom you have met when. And again, this will be used to help you to remember whom you have met. The cool thing about this is that this doesn't have to be necessarily processed by a central server. However, there has to be a central authority who has the phone number and the Bluetooth pair. So someone has to keep this information and then tracking people by sniffing their Bluetooth is then super easy. So there are these two projects, these three approaches that I've heard about that are now called smart quarantine. Great, thank you. Uh, while you were speaking, uh, there's another uh, two questions that have arrived, which I will read to you. They're a little bit more in general terms. One is, could you please compare some other countries and the UK in regards to dealing with the COVID? Uh, UK, obviously, the uh, Czech, uh, United States. Uh, and the other question was, if you can comment, uh, what do you think about the demographics of the coronavirus, particularly on the age group, sex ratio, ethnicities, uh, people more susceptible to be vulnerable to the, to the virus? Okay, so the first question was the situation in other countries? Yes, if you can compare the situation in UK to other countries and possibly the other approaches. I cannot really say what is the situation in, in UK because I don't stay there, but I can compare Czech to, to other countries. So one of the comparisons that I did in the beginning of, the, of, the, of this talk was comparing the words that are on the websites of the NHS, of the Center for Disease Control, and for our Ministry of Health. And one can see that the, I would say in the West, the prevention and the individual hygiene and in changing of the individual habits and staying at home, it's much more emphasized. In Czech, it's much more, uh, yeah, let the state to help, let the state help you. There is, if I should mention some other state where the situation is tackled, let's say in a non-traditional way, it's actually Sweden, right? So everybody is telling Sweden is doing something super risky, etc., etc., and they did not impose these these tight restrictions on on, uh, on they did not you know close unessential shops, at, at least as far as I know, etc., and many at least in our websites, it says that Sweden is like a bad example of dealing with this crisis. However, I asked a friend of mine who lives in Sweden and he told me, yeah, it's not prohibited to go to the shops. It's not prohibited to go to the streets, but it's discouraged. And the people take responsibility. And for example, he said, I asked him to install the app and to, to provide us with data. And he told me, yeah, but I will send you data, but I'm going to the shop next week. Yeah, so the, in Sweden, I guess that the social distancing measures can be actually as efficient as anywhere else without trying to scare people, just without trying, just with trying to recommend them. So that's the, the countries that I am familiar with. Um, one of the things that I happened in Slovakia, also with this one of these tracking systems, is that the data actually got leaked to the public. So now you can have a nice Google map 
with the red dots to see where the infected people stay. So this is just about yeah, gathering the, the data. So that's another country that I could mention. And there was a second part of the question, just if you could repeat it, because my memory is really bad. Yeah, the, the second part of the question, there was actually a different question from the different uh, participants. If you could comment uh, on the uh, people which might be more vulnerable to the, uh, to the illness in terms of the sex, age, uh, or any other uh, distinctions. Yeah, I mean, Regarding the, the demographics about the age, this is quite clear by the data that were provided by the Center for Disease Control, for example. And you can see that people who are generally, who are elderly are more endangered. And the second thing is that it's also very, very clear from the data from New York that people from the, let's say, lower, with the lower social status are the ones who are endangered more as well. But this is, I think, this is the case for any disease. People who are poorer, who cannot implement uh, proper social distancing because uh, of their living conditions. Also people who are in the services, who, who cannot really you know, sit nicely home and, and teach students from a distance, but they have to go to work because they work in lower paid, jo lower paid jobs. There are the more endangered. And of course, this can exhibit itself as a, as a, I would say, racial properties of this, of this disease, right? Because still there is inequality based on the nationality and on the country of origin in, in many of the states. But I guess the main reason is the social standing. Thank you. Uh, so we might have maybe time for one more question, which is just right here. Uh, and it's uh, on, uh, on data collection. Uh, Google has a library of popular times, which can provide popularity of particular place every hour week, uh, as you might know. Do you think that this data can be used efficiently uh, to kind of fit in your, your model? So one of the things that we observed is that these data are not from the examples that i that i did these data are not valid anymore because people's shopping habits changed tremendously because the the habits about work changed tremendously and kids are not at school so all of this really really changed the these popular times for google however what Google did is that they are now providing these data live. So this would be a great source of information for us. But there is a, there is a small problem is that since the, the Google's approach is based on big data, if there is a change in the dynamics of visits of these shops, it would take longer time to adjust these models. For example, the pubs in Czech are already closed for more than a month, which is a national disaster. And uh, if, I, if I go to a Google map and I click pubs in my, in my vicinity, it still shows that there are people there, but there is no one. So the models still did not update. And furthermore, there are typically shops 
and large shops and large places. But if you want to go to a nearby park where you know, there is no, no reason why to monitor it because these data are not, uh, are not monetizable, then there is no data about that park. If there is a local shop with a, with a sh which is run by one guy, again, Google does not provide data about these. And these places actually might be much, much safer to go to than any of these shops where Google provides these data. So to summarize, <clears throat> what Google is providing is definitely helpful, but it's better to dig the the real-time feed and to try to build the model for the next day from this real-time feed. And second, uh, since we want to work locally, we want to cover smaller places and Google does not cover them. Actually, in the demo that I was showing, approximately half of the locations were not covered by Google or yeah, they were not covered, but they were either not in the map at all or they were, there were no popular times associated with them because there is not enough people going there. Great. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Tomáš, for this rather uh, informative and interesting view in uh, the, the current situation that all of us are facing. If I should narrow it down, what I really like on that, that uh, your approach, the model, is really giving us uh, more kind of individual responsibility and participation without compromising the uh, access to, to our personal data. So I think uh, going forward, so this clearly will be sought, uh, sought seek forward uh, solutions as well. So thank you again. Uh, I would like to thank uh, all of the participants as well for, for joining in uh, today. Uh, stay well. Sorry about the little mishaps in the beginning. Uh, hope there went pretty, pretty well. Uh, so stay connected and hope to see you at some of the other events of the Czech Center in London. So thank you and have a good evening, all of you.